0: Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have an episode for you about the first constitution in California history. And next time, we'll have an interview with Dr. Sarah Wald, who is a professor at the University of Oregon, and we will discuss the environment, farm labor in California history. Let's get started with today's episode. I struggle to wait in line. The anxiety of not doing something, of my existence having no purpose other than being a cog on an assembly line waiting to be stamped by some large machine sometime in the unknown future is almost too much existential dread to be having in line at the DMV or at 5.30 in the evening after work at the grocery store. But to be honest, it's where I am. It's likely biological, evolutionary, and all that, to some degree, but it's mostly just impatience that has been created from living in a world where immediate gratification is the norm. It is important to remember that people a long time ago had a different sense of waiting, for mail, in travel. The proverbial walking five miles to school every day is so far removed from our experience in our daily lives, it's hard to overstate the chasm that separates us psychologically from the people of the past. Whenever I watch historical TV shows or movies like the show Bridgerton, which I want to state clearly here at the front, I was forced to watch at least for the first two episodes, but gladly finished the rest, That show wasn't trying to be historically accurate by any means, but it does give us, whether accidentally or on purpose, a false impression of the similarity in terms of mindsets with the people of the past. What is more disturbing, uh, but likely more accurate, is when the actual beliefs about the world are captured accurately in television and movies. When we get the sense of the psychological difference between us and the people of the past, it can be disorienting. We have this false sense that people's psychology is static and uniform. But in reality, it couldn't be more far from the truth. But back to waiting. When thinking about waiting, I'm reminded of the famous short poem by Bertolt Brecht called Wheel of Change. It reads, I do not like the place I am coming from. I do not like the place I am going to. Why do I watch the driver changing the wheel with impatience? In California, after the end of the Mexican-American War and the beginning of the gold rush, people were waiting. There was an anticipation that california would be absorbed into the union but when exactly that was going to happen was an open question by may of 1849 there was a general sense of anxiety of waiting california by that point had been occupied for three years since the famous bear flag revolt and there was an expectation that this time period this in-between period this purgatory before leaving the Mexican Union and joining the Union of the United States would soon come to an end. After all, with a growing population and the proliferation of mining camps, the US government had a clear vested interest in bringing California into the Union as soon as possible. There was a sense of anticipation in particular from the military leadership in charge, and even more particularly by Bennett C. Riley who we've discussed in a previous episode on the military government of California. At this point in May of 1849, California was in the midst of one of the more violent periods of the gold rush, which we'll cover in more detail in future episodes. In the midst of the general lack of authority that he had over this sprawling state, and in particular over the ever-shifting and violent mining camps, Riley decided to take initiative and called for a convention to begin the process of drafting a state constitution. Even though this move was bold and perhaps beyond the bounds of his role in the interim military government, he was certainly riding on a wave of popular frustration and anticipation of new structured leadership. There had been large town gatherings across California calling for congressional action, this congressional action to make California a state. Riley went ahead and named August 1st, 1849 as the date of the Constitutional Convention and established districts throughout California to elect delegates to the convention. Riley appointed important men across the state to help realize this bold proclamation and selected men who had held historical, albeit short, importance within their communities. Part of the need to establish a new constitution was the general disrespect for Mexican laws in the state of California, which had been maintained as a holdover from the previous Mexican government. We've discussed this before in some detail, talking about town councils and mayors. There was legal precedent for maintaining native laws of the land uh, in places where the status of territory was the legal status in relationship to the United States and had not yet been incorporated. For example, in the state of Louisiana, the laws were retained until it was incorporated to the United States. From a pragmatic standpoint, this seems to make sense, as creating a vacuum of legal authority would likely spell disaster for a government seeking to maintain order. Obviously, one of the problems in California is the giant influx brought about by the gold rush, meaning that there was a large number of people entering California with no sense of these Mexican laws and a giant incentive to ignore them and get rich accordingly. In preparation for the Constitutional Convention, the city of Monterey, the designated location for the convention, quickly built a hotel called Fonda de la Union to house all of the arriving delegates, while the actual proceedings of the event would be held in Colton Hall. Of the delegates that arrived, of the total of 75, only a few had lived in California for their whole lives. In other words, Californios uh, did not represent a large deciding body in drafting this constitution. While many of the delegates spoke English, Spanish speakers also represented a large portion of the delegates. In fact, all of the material needed to be translated in order to progress forward through the convention, every document, every form, every piece of writing. But this was for good reason. So that the convention could be equitable to those with this spanish and mexican ancestry one of the great legacies then of this first constitution was that it was one of the first bilingual political constitution creating events in history after arriving at their hotels the delegates got down to business uh, the reason that they had absconded to this picturesque location to accomplish the drafting of the constitution like many conventions the group was organized into various committees centered around certain topics and issues the constitution was not to be made ex nihilo; uh, the delegates would rely on models in other state constitutions william Gwin, a former soldier who served under andrew jackson and who moved to california and would strike it rich in the aptly named Gwin mine pointed to the model of the Iowa state constitution and even distributed copies of it to his fellow delegates. In fact, interestingly, the constitution that was ratified in Iowa in 1846 that was distributed at this event would in fact be replaced by the voters in Iowa in 1857, lasting for only 11 years. Gwynne's tactic of providing an example was rejected by most of the delegates as too heavy-handed Gwynne took the hint, and since he held ulterior motives to fill one of California's future U.S. Senate seats, he restrained himself. One of the early issues in dealing with new laws is that older laws would be replaced, and there was a large group of people whose existence was contingent on those previous laws. These laws, as I said before, came from a Spanish structure of civil law, which contrasted with the English form of common law. The simple, simple difference between these two types of legal apparatus is that in common law of the English, say, what matters most is the judicial opinions about issues. Those judicial opinions take precedence. Whereas in a civil apparatus, what matters most is the codified laws. Most countries and societies use a mixture of both of these approaches to legal issues, seeing that some situations need to be modified as the times change, while in others, we need to recognize the need for stability over time. One of the issues that came up around this topic is the issue of women's property rights. Under Spanish civil law, women had property rights that they did not have in the United States of America. The champion of women's property rights was Henry Halleck, who served as the acting secretary of state under General Riley. Halleck was a soldier who would become a wealthy lawyer and speculator in California, and would make his mark in California history in many ways. Halleck saw that retaining these property rights for women became a way to attract more women to migrate to California. As a result, because of his advocacy, California's constitution would be the first constitution in the United States to enshrine the right of married women to hold property separate from their husbands. In terms of slavery, the delegates never seriously considered petitioning to include slavery as part of its constitution. But before you take pride in the positive position of these delegates around the issue of slavery, the issue of race was not something that was ignored though. In fact, many delegates from the gold mining districts wanted to ban blacks from coming to the state entirely. The delegates also sought to disenfranchise Native Americans living in California from voting, which turned into a pretty awkward situation as some of the wealthy landowning Californios who were a part of the convention, would not be allowed to vote if this passed. Of course, these large landowners did not take their potential disenfranchisement lightly and threatened to disrupt the proceeding if the language remained the same. Ultimately, to avoid collapse, uh, action on the issue was deferred to future legislatures to handle. Two final things that seemed fairly superficial compared to voting and property rights, but are interesting historically, should be noted here at the close. First, the location of the capital. There were two contingents that fought vociferously for their respective cities to be the locations of the state capital, those being San Jose and Monterey, both having plenty of good reasons to argue for their location as the capital. Halleck proposed that the capital be in Monterey for one year before moving it permanently to San Jose. The year that followed in San Jose turned out to be an extremely wet year and created a stigma about the location in San Jose as construction projects were disrupted by the weather. We might still have the capital in California if it weren't for the bad luck of bad weather in the city of San Jose. The other somewhat superficial story associated with the creation of the seal of California. I recommend Googling the seal to look at it more closely. You see in the center, a Roman goddess who is Minerva, the god of wisdom, technical skill, and invention. Minerva is said, according to mythology, to have sprung from the mind of Jupiter or Zeus in the same way that California emerged as a nearly formed state. There was some debate about whether the grizzly bear should be lassoed in the seal. Ultimately, the domesticated version of the grizzly bear was vetoed. The seal was carved into wood and hung in different capitals across the state. It was rescued from a fire at one point and was placed in a museum in Pasadena, California. Later, it was purchased by Bill Hara of the casino world. The seal would sit in a casino on exhibit in the state of Nevada before it was eventually returned to California in the 1980s. Next time, we will have an interview with Dr. Sarah Wald, and we'll see you then.